first, let's, let's look at this dark side. For some, it's hard to stomach, and we turn away from our faith because of this. For some, we try and reconcile the differences and begin to believe that there are two different gods in the Old Testament, and then there's a God of the New Testament, and they're two separate. This is a heresy that was disproven in like 100 AD, but it's starting to resurface. It's called Marcionism, in case you want to go look it up. This is, but it's the view that there are two gods of the Bible. It's not true. It's the same God across the whole thing. But we try to explain these away, say, no, that's just a different, that's a different version of God, or that's, that's a different God altogether. Others try to ignore these parts, like some of us, how we like to ignore the hard things that we're supposed to do. We, we hope they go away, or we hope no one ever brings it up. But when we do this, we refuse to, res- to respect Scripture the way it's due. When we try to minimize these violent passages, we try to rationalize them, or worse, when we try to justify them, we are seeing that we're softening the material in order to make it conform to what we expect God to be like. We start making God in our image. There's a quote that says, God made man in his image, and then ever since then, we're trying to be gentle people and return, return the favor and make God into our image and what we want God to be like. And so, but when we do this, when we soften or we justify or completely ignore, we're not giving Scripture the due respect that it's needing. A true respect for Scripture and God means that we need to be ruthlessly honest about these dark sides. One theologian said it this way, that all Scripture is inspired by God, and we all believe that. But when we say all Scripture is inspired, as 2 Timothy 3 would say, we need to say that even the hard passages are inspired by God and useful, even the disturbing parts. So when we look at Deuteronomy 20, God tells Israel to attack and leave no one, leave no living thing alive. That's one of 36 other passages that get more and more brutal as you read them. There's complete genocide. There is wipe them out, don't leave anything, take people as slaves. And as you're reading through this, you're going, what happened to God who is compassionate? What happened to God who is kind? It's irresponsible to pretend that these passages aren't there because they are. I've read them. And if you want to read them too, I can give you some. If you want some good reading, I can give you some some reading. It's dishonest to say that these texts aren't offensive because there are. They are offensive. It's ignorant to say that these texts haven't been used to justify a host of violence in God's name because they're still being used to justify a host of violent acts in God's name. Our responsibility with these texts is, as people who represent Jesus to the world around us, is not to shy away from these texts because they're not going to go away. The only way to discover the beauty that lies on the other side of this mountain of ugliness is to courageously confront and walk through it. It's to understand it. And once you understand it, they start to make sense. Not just for people who are struggling with faith in Jesus, not just for people who don't know Jesus, but for us as well. The way you imagine God determines the quality of your relationship with God. The intensity of your love for God will never outrun the beauty of God that you envision. Your imagination of God in your head will affect the depth of your transformation into the likeness of Christ. Don't believe me? Fine. Genesis 1. 
Satan comes in in the form of Genesis 3. Satan comes down in the form of a serpent. He goes to Eve. He tempts Eve. What was the basis of his temptation? Image of God. She, he starts to pick away. Are you sure that's what God said? Or maybe he's hiding something from you. And because of the image of God that she has was questioned, then there was temptation, fall into temptation, and sin into the world. The way you imagine God will dictate your transfer, transformation into the likeness of Christ. In fact, there's mounting neurological evidence that a person's mental representation of God significantly affects their quality of life, either for better or for worse. For example, it's a neurological fact that... People who have a loving mental representation of God tend to have a greater capacity to think objectively about controversial matters and make rational decisions than people who have a threatening mental representation of God. So if you think God is ticked off all the time, chances are so will you. If you think God is loving and gracious, you're being formed into people that look like him, who look like Jesus, you probably don't think God is ticked off all the time. This is what that fact that what that study is saying. So this stuff matters. If you think God is angry, you're angry. And then we start taking it out and we start embodying an angry God to the people around us and then think people think, oh, Christians are angry. And then now we have a, a portrait of God that is completely inaccurate. So this matters. So we have to look at it right. And the way we look at it is to look not just to these passages, but we have to look to the point of these passages. What's going on in Scripture that this story is in here? There's a larger book at play. These are just snapshots. And in order to do that, we need to look at the cross. We need to look at Jesus. In order to look at this book correctly, we need to uh, adjust our viewpoint. Over my life, I've been under the impression, and maybe you have too, that Scripture is flat, meaning that Exodus has the same amount of weight as Galatians, and that all of them are equal in their interpretation, and, 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 and that there's, they're just kind of sitting on their own, and you could separate them, and they would sit fine, and they would be just as authoritative on their own, which is not a bad idea. But the truth of the matter is, Scripture is not flat like that. Scripture is always pointing to something or rather pointing to someone. When we look at the Old Testament, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, even the wonderful book of Leviticus, we have to look at it saying, where are they going with this? What is the point of this? What is the trajectory of Scripture? And when you back up and look at it from the larger point of view, everything in Scripture points to the person of Jesus. More specifically, Everything in Scripture points to Jesus on the cross. The Old Testament is looking forward, pointing to it. So it's not flat, it's building up to the cross. If you go past the Gospels and you look back from Acts backwards, so all the epistles, Acts, Galatians, Ephesians, Revelation, all of them looking back to the cross. Everything goes back to the cross. As N.T. Wright says that the cross is at the center of the entire Scripture. It's the axis on which everything turns. It's the sun in the universe and the world revolves around the cross. This is how we have to look at it. The Bible in this way is shaping our mental representation of God. The Bible itself instructs us to base our image on God, on, uh, solely on Jesus. 
Jesus becomes the looking glass from which all Scripture should be interpreted. All Scripture testifies to Christ and is useful for teaching and rebuking and guiding. All Scripture is God-breathed, looking at the person of Jesus. Scripture even says so. We have some on the, on the screen. Hebrews 1 through, uh, 1, 1 through 3. I'll read it with you. See my bald spot? In the past, it's like all of it. I have the reverse fade for those of you who get fades on your hair. Anyway, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets and many times through in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir to all things. And through him, he also through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty in heaven. The Son is the radiance himself of God's glory. What does Jesus look like? Or what does God look like? According to Hebrews, looks like Jesus. Next scripture, Mr. Roger. John 5, 39, Jesus says the same things. He's talking to some Pharisees. You study the scriptures diligently. Because you think that in them you have found eternal life. They are the very script, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Next scripture. He continues in picking on the Pharisees. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. He's talking about Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Torah. Some of those books have all these violent pictures. And what's he saying? All of these point to him. They all point to Jesus. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2.2. My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that, they may have, so, that, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures and the wisdom and the knowledge. And then verse 9, For in Christ all of the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Are we seeing this? Everything about God is shown to us in the person of Jesus. Paul couldn't be more emphatic about this. All things all, not some of the fullness, not part of the fullness, not an aspect of God, not a lesser divine being embodied in Christ. Paul is saying that all the attributes and activities of God and his wisdom, his word, his spirit and glory are disclosed in Christ. If you want to see what God looks like, even in the most confusing parts of the scriptures, you have to look at Jesus. Jesus becomes the looking glass for all of us to see what God is really like. In John 14, there was some confusion for his disciples, and only one of them was really brave enough to say anything. And we like to pick on the disciples, but really the disciples are just like you and I. They're just more brave to ask the questions. So they were, they were wondering, like, what does God really look like? And so Philip probably gets elbowed by somebody else to ask the question and says, show us the Father, and in John 14, Jesus says back to this back, haven't I been with you this entire time, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip was just as confused as we are because Philip grew up with those same passages. 
Philip's idea of God was this, uh, this, this God who went ahead and killed all the enemies. But that's not what Jesus is embodying. So he's a little bit confused and he wants to know. And, then God, and Jesus says, no, if you want to see what God looks like, not how tall God is, not what kind of hair he had, not you know, if he was male or female, just if you want the essence of God's character, you look to Jesus and you shouldn't look anywhere else besides him. Jesus then becomes our light that we take in to find, find God in the darkest parts of Scripture. More specifically, that light shows us the cross because on the cross we get the most vivid picture of God, a person of character, a person of self-sacrificial love that we'll ever find. Every step of Jesus' life went towards the cross. In fact, we, the cross shows us what love actually is. First John 3.16, not John 3.16. That one's a good one too, and we all know that one. First John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is the model of love that we find in Jesus. If you want to know what God looks like, and I'm saying it a lot because it's a correct representation or the correct portrait that we should have of God, we have to look at Jesus. The cross is the definitive revelation of God's cross-like character. In, on the cross, we see that God is best characterized by a self-sacrificial, non-violent, enemy-embracing love, and anything that isn't this isn't God. When we approach God, we approach him through Christ, which means our mental pictures need to be anchored on Christ. It should be anchored on Christ crucified. This is the case that God reveals himself to us in the best way that we can reveal, be, the best way that we can see God is through Jesus. Have you ever met somebody through their reputation and not them? Have you ever had that? Someone starts talking about so-and-so and you haven't necessarily met them and so they're saying, ah, oh, this person's kind of a jerk. This person does this. And so then you come to, maybe it's church on Sunday, and you come in and here's this person and you're thinking, oh, this person, I don't want to meet them. No, 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 no. And then you meet them and you're like, hey, they're actually really nice. This is what's happening here. We've, some of us have met God based on a false representation of who God is. We've refused to see him through the lens of Christ. But when we walk to him and we meet him through the way Christ points him out, we go, oh, God's really not that angry. God's not that way at all. So something else has to be happening in those passages. And when we, So what is going on with the dark passages? Two things. First thing, incarnation. How many of you have heard this word? It usually doesn't come out until December, Right? We talk about Jesus becoming a man. So this is the, this is, but incarnation happens all through the scripture. So one of the ways we look at this, uh, at the dark passages through the light of Christ, is the incarnation. It's reserved for Christmas, but what it means is God meeting people where they are. In John 1, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But God had been trying to dwell among us and take us to different places from Genesis all the way until now. Here's what I mean. In the, ancient, in the ancient Near East, there was a ton of gods. They were polytheistic, which means many gods. And different ones of these gods had different types of uh, worship practices. Some of them, Molech and a few others, 
wanted child sacrifice. This is what their followers would do. And so in order to relate to this God, they would have to sacrifice children. God, being incarnational, comes down and meets Abraham in the city of Ur and starts calling him forward, not to polytheism, but to monotheism. Are we tracking here? A lot of ism in theistic words. And so he goes and he meets Abraham where he is. Incarnation meets Abraham in the tent and says, I want you to follow me. So in the midst of a polytheistic culture, God calls Abraham, meets him in that way, and brings him to the worship of the one true God. Now here's where it gets interesting. Abraham, in Genesis, is told to sacrifice his son Isaac. This is a story that I skip when I read the Bible to my son Judah, because there's just way too many questions. But, uh, but he, he goes, and he's going to be afraid to go with me on a walk. If, if we <laughs> Here, carry this wood. Don't worry about it. He would do it. Uh, but he goes, Abraham says to Isaac, let's go for a walk. Carry this wood. And they walk up, and he's going to sacrifice him. Abraham obeyed God, God's command to do this like it was no big deal. Why? Because that's the type of culture Abraham lived in. The type of culture that was, it was completely normal to sacrifice children. He doesn't know how it's going to go. But this is a normal thing to do. So he walks up on top of the hill. He binds him up, puts him on, and then God does what? Provides another way. In other words, he brings Abraham from the furthest point of view, this ugly practice of child sacrifice, and says, hey, I'm God. I'm the biggest and baddest of them all. I'm the strongest one. You don't need to do this. So let's put an end to child sacrifice. And right there, God says, I'm going to provide a better way. Do you know what that's a picture of? Jesus. It's a picture of the cross. It's incarnation. It's a troubling passage. It's a dark passage. But in that passage, we see the cross. God's also doing something else in these passages. He's accommodating each and every single one of us. God's incarnational, and he's also accommodating. God loves us in the midst of our brokenness, and so he accommodates our blind spots. Whether it's monotheism coming from polytheism, or the idea that you could just marry whoever you want, have have many wives you want, child sacrifice, he meets people where they are and calls them to his ideal. He accommodates in order to allow us to transform The God of the Bible is a call ultimately for people to worship the God who is above all other gods, but in order for us to listen to him, he needs to speak our language. So God enters the scene in a a brutal, bloody, militarily uh, sharp culture that says we need to kill every, this is how we know that our God is the strongest. God enters the scene in that culture and he speaks their language. And then he begins to call people out of it. And so what you see is less and less of the wars and the less and less of the genocide until you're confronted with Jesus on the cross who says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. God is accommodating the sin and the brokenness in order for him to move people from this point to this point. You see it? It's accommodation. God does that with us today. He takes us to the cross. Our journey with Christ is transformational. God accommodated us 
too. If you, look, if you hear this and go, oh no, God's not accommodating of sin, and you throw everything out, you throw us out too, because when God met you, you didn't have all the answers either. He met you where you were, and then his spirit begins to enliven you and enrich you and pulls you into a life that begins to be shaped by who he is. He is accommodational, and he is incarnational. And it happens today. There's a story of, and it's a brutal story, and I'm sorry if this is too graphic for some, but there's a story of these American missionaries who went to Central Africa. They felt really called to go to Central Africa. And they knew where they were going, that there was this brutal, terrible practice of female circumcision that would happen in this part of Africa. And they said, no, we are called to go here. And they enter to the scene. They see what's happening. They could have done this. Hey, stop this. This is terrible, which it is. But if they would have done that, they probably would have been killed by the people they were supposed to minister to. So what do they do? Incarnational and accommodating. They move into the neighborhood. And then they start saying, hey, what if, what if we inched them along? What if we gave them the proper anesthesia to do this? What if we gave them medication for pain? What if we gave them sanitary uh, instruments, better knives? What if we gave them a sterile broom? And they start going from this brutal practice, and they inch people along. And then three years later, three years of this, the people in that village say, we, we really don't need to do this. And the missionaries are like, yeah, of course. But do you see how that works? Accommodated. They never said it was right. They never said it was proper. But they say, we have to show you a better way. This is what God does in those places that are just so messed up in the Old Testament. He's showing us a better way. In the same way that these missionaries accommodated, God accommodated the brutal violence in the Old Testament in order to journey with us to the cross to show us the type of love, the type of love that absorbs human violence in order to bring an, to an end to it and in order to meet us. He meets us, us humanity, there in order to lead us forward. And it's here where we find the unending love. Is it difficult to read these passages? Absolutely. Even when you understand where the author's going, it's still difficult to read this. If you say, I don't want to worship a God who accommodates this kind of thing, you're saying is, I don't want to worship a God who accommodates you and I. I don't want to worship a God who accommodates my sin. And if that's the case, we're all done in because what does Jesus do? He accommodates people. The woman at the well... He accommodates her. He shouldn't even be talking to her. And what's he do with her? He calls her out. He meets her where she is and calls her out. And she becomes one of the first successful missionaries in Scripture. The woman caught in adultery. What should Jesus have done? But what's he do? He picks her up and says, go and sin no more. Peter denied Jesus. Jesus should have just cut him off. No, no more, you're out. But what's he do? He reinstates him in John 21. Paul should have never done what he did. He killed Christians. But the last half of your Bible, mostly Paul. Paul, Paul's accommodated. We're accommodated. We're all here because God is patient with us. He's patient with all people. And we should be wise to learn these patience with other people as well. There are times where Jesus is angry. 
So to say that God isn't angry is not true because there are times where Jesus is royally ticked off. We see it all through, and, and some of it in the New Testament. Uh, he's angry when the religious leaders in Matthew 23, uh, when they start to make people feel guilty for what they're doing, even though they're trying their best, they become a barrier between him or them and God. They, they keep people out. They know their Bibles. They enforce the religious traditions. They seek to live according to every period and hyphen of the law, but in their practice, they are doing more damage than good, and Jesus is very mad at them. He calls them a brood of vipers, which is uh, not really a name you want to be called. Then in John 2, Jesus makes a whip and, and drove out the money changers and the animals and he poured out their money. He threw it across the room. He was angered at the religious industries that made people pay money in order that they should worship God. Jesus was angry at any hint of someone profiting from another person's vulnerability. Jesus was angry at anyone who would mislead a child. In John eleven thirty five, 35, the passage goes like this. He goes to visit his friend Lazarus, his tomb, because he's dead. John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible says, Jesus wept. But when you look and scratch the surface of the, that phrase, Jesus wept, it's tears of anger. He's mad. And he's so mad. Have you ever been here? You're so mad that you can just cry. That's how mad he is. He's not mad that he's wanting to throw people across the room. He's not flying off the hinge. He's mad because Something is standing in the way of his best. And in this case, he's mad at death. Jesus is angry at all that robs people from reaching their fullest potential in him. And he went to the cross to ensure that we would reach that potential. These passages are frightening just like those pictures that Judah was staring at the other night. These passages are a reflection of our brokenness. They're a reflection of our sin. And the God who enters into those places and bears that sin and shame on the cross on our behalf is the same God in which we worship, and it's the same God we see in Jesus. These ugly pictures are the images of truth, and the heavenly missionary of Jesus has always been willing to humbly stoop down to bear our ugliest side of our character. And all of this so that you and I can approach him confidently. As Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. I'm reading this from the New Living Translation. It's close. I like how this says. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. He's a good father. That's the image that we get from Jesus about our God. I was lucky to grow up with a good dad, a dad that I didn't have to be afraid to go see him about anything. If I would have messed up, I can go to my dad and say, dad, I screwed up. Most likely he would put his arm around me and then say, you dummy. But in a loving way, this is how my dad would talk to me. But he, he would say, you could, you're better. You can do better than this. I'm not mad at you. Let's see if we can make this right. Loving, gracious, kind, compassionate. 
The picture of, that, of God that we have needs to be a picture of God that we see in Jesus, of a good father who's willing to meet you halfway down the road when you screwed up and embrace you and bring you back. For many of us, we've kept ourselves at a distance from God, whether it's uh, out of fear or out of, I'm a, I don't know what to do. Today, I wonder if something can switch in you, where if you're not afraid to go and approach God, you're not afraid to come to him with your screw-ups. You're not afraid uh, to admit because he's not going to smite you. Instead, like the prodigal son, he's going to embrace you and bring you home and cook a really big dinner for you. This is the God we have. This is the God we serve, a God who is on our side, not a God who's trying to wipe us out. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in you we see Jesus and we see, Je- and we see you through Jesus. And so God, we thank you that we have uh, Jesus in order to see you more clearly. And so God, today as we pause, as we, as we uh, consider your scripture, may you confront the pictures of you that are inaccurate. The pictures of you who th- that we think that you're judgmental, that you're not kind, that you're angry. May we hold those up to the light of Christ and see how they fit. And Lord, may we do the challenging work of adjusting our focus, adjusting our eyesight in order to see the proper you more clearly. came after us you met us in our brokenness and in our shame and you called us to wholeness and healing and your grace it's in your name we thank you amen
following along with the portrait books. Uh, if you haven't received a portrait book, they're in the back. If you want one digitally, uh, you can text and receive one, uh, 64600, the word portrait, and one will be sent to you. Uh, the practice this week is breath prayers. How many of you have done breath prayers before? Great, just a few. I've done them. The suggested breath prayer this week is this. When you breathe, I mean, hopefully all of us are breathing now. If not, we do have some medical professionals that could help. Uh, but breath is something that's constant to you. So the challenge is this. When you breathe in, you breathe in this. In you are my advocate, Jesus. Breathe in. As you breathe out, your love holds me. Breathe in. You are my advocate, Jesus. Breathe out. Your love holds me. It's a discipline of slowing down. It's a discipline of listening to your breath. But it's also a reminder. Jesus is your advocate. His love, not his anger, is what holds you. And so this week, we encourage you to, to try that practice. Try it on for a couple times. See how it works. You don't have to use that phrase. You can use a different phrase. Uh, I was taught to do breath prayers through the Lord's Prayer. It works. It was calming. It was great. This is just an, an, a, just an example for you to follow. But as we go, may we be a representation of God's love towards others. May the way that we see God be seeing God through the lens of self-sacrificial love that we see on the cross. And may we display that God to the world around us. Would you pray with me and then we can get out of here. Father, we thank you that you died for us so that we can be your children of God. That's what you say we are. We are holy. We are healed. We are in your family. We are adopted. We are loved completely, mistakes and all, in order that we may transform to be more of your likeness. Our lives are hidden with you. So Lord, may we take that representation and portrait to the world that is broken around us so that they might see the proper picture of who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.